if you were a manufacturer, guilt development's your raw material. You've got to have good development to get good lifetime performance. And if you develop the guilt well, you set yourself up for success. Welcome to Inside the Helix, a podcast presentation from DNA Genetics. Throughout this series, we focus on all things that matter to the pork industry. You'll hear from our award-winning team of geneticists, veterinarians, animal care providers, nutritionists, and other industry-leading experts. We'll explore pig production from genetic improvement all the way to meat quality. Listen along as we take a deep dive inside the DNA Helix. Today on Inside the Helix, we're kicking off part one of a five-part series focused on DNA Genetics' five pillars of reproductive care. My first guest to talk about our first pillar, guilt development, is Dr. John Sonderman. Dr. Sonderman is the Director of Technical Services with DNA Genetics. Dr. Sonderman, thanks for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here, Curtis. John, guilt development is arguably one of the most important stages of DNA's five pillars of reproductive care as it truly impacts the other four. Why is guilt development so important? Guilt development, if you were a manufacturer, guilt development's your raw material. You've got to have good development to get good lifetime performance. And if you develop the guilt well, you set yourself up for success. And if you develop the guilt poorly, you set yourself up for failure. It's, it's really, really critical. So then again, as, as we're looking at guilt development, where do we really begin in this process or where, where should we start? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that goes into guilt development. One of them is they need good care. They're not a finisher pig. They're not a market hog. They're an animal that represents the future of your operation. So I think it starts with making sure that you give them plenty of space. Uh, we've got some really good research data that shows that if you give them adequate space in the nursery and then the grow finish, that they'll grow faster, obviously. I think everybody can understand that. But they'll actual, actually cycle better, and they'll have higher conception rates, so they're more likely to enter the herd. So I think it kind of starts just looking at how am I going to feed them to get good growth and give them plenty of room you know, I'd like to put them in a facility that has really good flooring so we don't have leg injuries. I mean, all those things are thoughts that need to go in right away from the, from the time you wean those gills. And then I think uh, the other key point is beyond the space and feeding them right is there's been a lot of debate over the years. A lot of producers have just looked at age. At a certain age, we're going to start doing things. And, and what we've really decided is weight is more important as far as sexual maturity, uh, not just physical maturity. And so understanding what they weigh, nutritionally, usually around 150 to 175 pounds, you start giving them a few extra reproductive minerals and reproductive vitamins to help them develop because, again, we're not sending them to market. We want them to stay around for a long time. And then, you know, as you get to about 265 pounds for a 241 and maybe 275 pounds for a or a purebred, then you start looking at, okay, now it's time to start boar exposure. Now we, we talked about how age is less important. What roughly, how long or what age are we looking at once we are, we're looking at that 265 for those 241s and for the purebreds, the 275? Yeah, you know, usually uh, if, if things are going well and you don't have any challenges in the, the grow outside, the GDU, you know, at 265 pounds starting to heat check, 
because then if you get one heat, find them in heat at what we call heat no serve, then you can let them sit for 21 days. And there's some real benefits to that as far as lifetime productivity and, and productivity at their first parity. For a purebred, they just take a little bit longer. They're a little bit slower growing. It's probably going to take them two to three weeks longer to reach, you know, that 265. And you want them just a little bit bigger when you breed them. In a perfect world, every line 241 gilt would be 300 pounds plus, and she'd have a heat no serve. But when you get to the pures, it's it's a little bit more. You Probably you want them to be 325 pounds with a heat no serve when you breed them. Since they do can grow a little bit slower, you just have to be aware of that. Now, John, I don't mean to be jumping all around here, but you mentioned something at the very beginning. You mentioned the importance of, of having enough space. As we look at the gilt development units and, and the gilts that we have there, what's the stocking density that, that producers should keep in mind? Or what are DNA genetics recommendations when it comes to stocking density? Yeah, really, you know, three and a half square feet in the nursery, um, six square feet from 11 weeks to about 24 weeks. And really by 24 weeks of age, they need to be at 12 square feet. Our data showed we looked at uh, growing those gilts at, at 6 square feet and at 10 and at, I think, 13. And there was a definite difference. There was a big difference from that 6 to 7 square feet to 10, but there was still a difference from 10 square feet to 13 square feet. And when I say difference, we had higher conception rates. We had more of the gilts that we found in heat. And we actually got bread. So, I mean, it's a real, real economic value to you to go ahead and, and give them that extra room so that they develop well. And we're collecting the data on the fairway to show that if we see any better performance in total born in that in those gilts too. But we'd expect there would be. All right. So let's then go on to heat no service. We talked about that. or You mentioned that just a bit ago. As we look at heat no service, I know this is a common practice with DNA genetics. How common is this within the industry overall? Well, it's probably not as common as it should be. Um, we do know that heat no serves can can gain somebody, you know, up to a pig on total born. And so you think, well, a pig, that's worth a lot. But what some people assume is, well, she's this old and she's cycled on her own. The problem is you don't really know that. And you don't know if you've given them the proper exposure that they've had that heat no serve. So to have a defined heat no serve process where you go in, heat check, mark them, and then weigh them and see if they're big enough to breed or if you need to skip them till the next cycle, that's a really, really, um, it's, it's not only important for, for the productivity of the guilt, that first letter, but it's important for her lifetime productivity. And you've got an animal that's more, more ready to hit the ground running. Yeah, so that heat no service really increases total born in the first parity, um, but then subsequently the lifetime parity is probably the most important part of that. Yeah, and what we've seen in, in most data sets, you never recover if you don't get it the first parity. Yeah. It's not like they're going to, oh, we didn't do quite as good, but the second parity, they'll do great. Well, they will do good the second parity, but they won't do as good as if they had done well the first parity. Now, as we look at maybe... Fence line versus in-pen bore exposure, pros, cons of each? Yeah, you know, um, some people say, I just can't accomplish, uh, I don't have enough bore power to go in pens. That's okay. It can work to do fence line, but you have to have enough fence line. If all the gilts in the pen can't get to the fence line to be stimulated by that bore, then it's not going to work very well. 
in those situations, you're better off putting the boar in the in the pen with them. Um, you know, different people have, have tried different things, but at the end of the day, nose-to-nose contact with that boar is critical to get them to stimulate into puberty and, and to come return for their second cycle. And so if, if you can't accomplish that nose-to-nose contact, you're not going to be as effective. What about the duration of fence line versus in-pen boar exposure? How long are you keeping those boars out there? Yeah, you know, it's it's a little bit of a science and a little bit of an art because long enough is the right <laughs> word. You want to do it long enough to get the response that you need, but it's not two minutes. Yeah. It's not a, I call it, some people do a drive-by heat check where the boar is just driving by in his car and in the, uh, they get a whiff, and before they can uh, get locked into standing estrus, the boar's gone. I think a good rule of thumb is if you can give each, if it's a pen, if you can be in there five to ten minutes. Because when they're in the pens next to him, coming up to them, you're still stimulating. Those gilts are here, the boar, they hear the activity. And so they start to get excited so that when the boar's presented to them, that they're more likely to go into standing heat. And then when you go to the pen next to them, there's still that little bit of extra exposure so i think if if you can go five to ten minutes in a pen you're probably going to get an easy 15 to 20 minutes um, of total exposure which for some gilts they need it some gilts just take a little bit longer you know not everybody won their wife on their first date um (laughs) took a little bit of extra romancing yeah a little romancing and so i think we got to remember that there we go so then if a gilt responds then to heat, no service, are we sending her right away to be bred at the sow farm then? Or yeah, what, what I, weights are we looking at? Yeah, I, I think it, purebred versus. Yeah, I think it really depends. So, I mean, for a line 241, if you find her in heat and let's say she weighs 275 pounds, she's too, too still too light to breed. So a good process is if you can move her into a, a stall, if you're in a stalled system, or into a separate pen with other gilts that have come in heat that week, so that you know that 21 days later, that that whole pen of gilts is going to return and they'll be ready to breed. If she's too light, then you just leave her in the general population and let her grow till the next time around. And then with the purebreds, you know, again, it's a little bit, a little bit heavier weights. You know, maybe you're, they're going to end up being that 275 to 295 pounds before you, you, you'll still do that heat no serve and you'll move them out into that pen. Because, again, you want them to be over 310 pounds and preferably 325 pounds. Yeah, absolutely. Then if our gilts aren't cycling then, are are we kind of looking at the end of the road at a certain point? Yeah, you know, that's always a question is, I've you know, this gilt's been here for a while and, sh- and she's making the weight, um, but she's still not cycling. You know, what can you do? You know, some of the things that seem to work well is you can take those pens of gilts and, and mix them. Or if they're in stalls, you can take them and put them in pens. And it seems like the the process of taking them out, put them into a different pen with different animals, they kind of get a little bit stressed from the, the, the new environment and meeting all these new gilts. And so a lot of times you'll see a 50% of those gilts will pop with an, with an estrus cycle beyond that. You know, every farm, every system's got its, it depends a little bit on, on your gilt weight and that, but most of them have a what we call a drop dead time, and that is, if she's this old and she's not weighed enough, then she's probably not a good gilt to keep. 
if she has weight, she weighs enough and she's that old, and we tried the stress mixing and that didn't help, then some groups will use PG-600. And if it's truly a non-cyclic guilt, um, she should respond to PG-600. Um, but if you use PG-600 and you don't get a very good response, that tells you that those gilts are cycling and that you need to do a better job of heat checking. So maybe go back and help your people retrain, make sure you're getting a good bore exposure. Make sure if you were only doing fence line contact that you're putting those bores in the pens. Those are some things that you can do to really make sure you get a chance to to get them into the herd. Well, and you don't want to miss out on some good gilts. Right, right. You know, and you've got a lot of money invested in that gill at that point. And so if you can uh, get her to enter your herd, it's better off. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about stall acclimation then let's say we get these gilts to the sow farm how long are we waiting before breeding and how how are we making them as comfortable as possible yeah you know stall acclimation there's some people that say oh, i don't see any benefit from, from it and other people that say oh it's a huge benefit but i think the the data would tend to say that when you move a gilt into a stall the first few days she doesn't eat very well and if you're trying to get an animal to cycle and, and breed an animal that's not eating very well, you're going to have poor conception rates and probably poor total born and born alive. So I think what some of the groups have done is if I move her in and she comes into heat the day that I move her in, I'm probably going to breed her as long as she meets the weight requirement. But if let's say she comes in five days after I move her in, I'm probably not going to breed her. The data out there, there's different systems have a little bit different data, but it seems to be somewhere in that 10 to 14 days. If you can get them 10 to 14 days of acclimation, you do usually end up seeing better fairing rates and higher total born and born alive. And so I think given your system and what you've got for a setup, if you can do stall acclimation, there's definitely an economic benefit. So I think it's something that you need to look at if it's something you're not doing right now. Now you kind of touched on this, but why that 10 to 14 days? Does the guilt just feel more at home and comfortable at that time? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of, you know, the moving to a new place. But the other thing is just because they're uncomfortable and they're stressed out, they're not eating very well. And females, whether it's in nature or in a, in a pig barn or, or really anywhere, I mean, ath- marathon runners see the same thing. If their energy balance isn't positive, if they aren't in a positive energy balance, they don't cycle well. And if they do cycle, they tend to have low fertility because their body's telling them there's not enough resources to get pregnant and to raise these babies. And so I probably shouldn't be doing this. And so during that time frame where they're in a negative energy balance, it's just a bad time to breed. And it it doesn't matter. It's really a bad time for all species. If they're in a negative energy balance, the mind is telling them the hormones, the is telling their brain, Hey, you know what, this is not a good time to be pregnant with a lot of babies. So maybe you ought to not have as many, or maybe you shouldn't cycle at all. So I think, you know, that's how you got to look at it. It, It's really intuitive when you think of it in nature's way. So then that leads to the next topic. Let's talk about how to get these gilts in a positive energy balance. How much should we be feeding these gilts? Yeah, you know, I think uh, two things you got to remember. You've moved them from a self-feed finisher, feeding six pounds a day or more. And do they really need that six pounds? Probably not, but they need enough to keep them cycling. So you have to understand your genetic line and what the maintenance is. And, you know, if the maintenance is, say, for a DNA is probably somewhere in the four pounds a day, you've got to feed them more than four pounds in order for them to keep cycling. But you got to remember what guilt is still growing. 
So you probably got to feed them a little bit more than maintenance because reproduction is a luxury to the animal. She wants to survive and she wants to stay healthy and, and then she wants to be in a positive energy balance. And if any of those things, if, if she feels fear, she's not getting enough to maintain her body, if she's not getting enough to fight off a health challenge, she doesn't want to breed. And so you really need to make sure that they're in a positive energy balance. A lot of systems will feed their gilts twice a day. Because when a gilt's in a pen, most of them don't go up and sit and eat six pounds all at one setting. They go eat some and go back and lay down, maybe take a drink, and then go back and eat some more. Or maybe they wait for a later snack. So they're not normally given. So when you give them six pounds at one crack, they're like, wow, this is a lot. Right. They're more snack feeders. Yep, yep. So they've. So I think it's two times a day feeding in, in the gilt row is really, really a good idea because it's more natural to where she, they came from. You've been in the industry for a number of years. What would you say the biggest changes in gilt development would look like? Yeah, I think I think for a lot of years, nobody thought about their gilts. They really didn't think about their gilts until they needed to, needed to meet breed targets, which is very, very unfortunate because we know with all the research that there's a lot of opportunity to improve the, the lifetime performance of that gilt. And, you know, when you're looking at, you look at your replacement rate, whether it's a 40% or you're at a 60%, whatever it is, high percentage of the females that you're farrowing every year are gilts. It's 40% of the litters are gilts or 50% or 60, whichever you're doing. And so when you start to look at it that way, they're a big impact on the number of pigs that you're going to produce in that sow unit per year. And I think you have to think of it that way, that this is the raw material that that makes me successful. And if I treat her well and do the right things, she's going to repay me with good performance. Now, John, to close out here, inevitably, unless a producer has listened to this podcast episode at least 25 times or taken extensive notes, which we hope they have, he or she is bound to miss an item or two from our discussion. If a producer is wanting to improve their guilt development process using DNA genetics, recommendations, what would be a few final summary points that they can take home with them? Well, number one is think about them before you're ready to breed them. I think you need to think about, did I give them adequate space? Again, they're not a finisher pig. So did I give them 10 square feet, 12 square feet, 13 square feet when they were 20 weeks of age plus? So that not only would they grow well, but they develop well. There's less fighting amongst those gilts typically. Um, usually fewer uh, issues um, from lameness and things like an injuries. So I think that's the first thing is, is are you, do you have them separate and are you treating them like a guilt instead of a market hog? Then after that is, am I giving them, you know, do I know what they weigh? Let, let's take all the guesswork and say, well, she's this old. Well, that really doesn't tell me anything other than she's that old. So let's weigh them, understand our growth patterns and understand, you know, that those guilts are, physiologically mature in the right stage to start breeding and, and either boar exposure and or breeding. You know, and then lastly, we know that the heat no serves value. We know that if crate breaking is possible, it's a value. So how can you change your routines to accomplish what those two processes can give you in productivity and lifetime performance? Very good information. Thank you very much, Dr. John Sonderman, Director of Technical Services with DNA Genetics. 
This wraps up the first pillar from DNA Genetics' five pillars of reproductive care. Join us in our next episode as we visit about our second pillar focused on estrus detection with Dr. Steve Trelau. Thanks for tuning in to Inside the Helix. I'm Curtis Harms. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Helix, presented by DNA Genetics. Inside the Helix is released every other Tuesday and is focused on what matters to the swine industry. To catch up on previous episodes, visit us online at dnaswinegenetics.com or find us at your favorite podcast streaming platforms. You can also keep up with DNA Genetics throughout the year by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. For Inside the Helix, I'm Curtis Harms. Thank you.